0: We're going to be reading from 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, the first uh, seven verses of 2 Timothy chapter 2. We'll also be looking in just a moment in the back of our Psalter hymnals at the Heideberg Catechism. Lord's Day 24, in just a moment, we'll read from Lord's Day 24. But first let's read our text from Second Timothy chapter two that's found on page 1181. Second Timothy chapter two, the first seven verses. "You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men everything. And that's as far as reading from 2 Timothy. Then I encourage you to turn with me in the back of your songbooks to Lord's Day 24. As you will remember, last week we looked at the definition of justification, how we are right with God. That very important doctrine of being saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. So it's not any works that we perform and that brings us to the question, uh, if our works aren't the basis of our salvation, why do them? What's the motivation? And that's, we're going to be looking at the motivation here uh, for our good works in Lord's Day 24. That's found at page 882 in the back of our Red Songbooks. Lord's Day 24, I'll read the question, let's respond with the answers together. Question and answer 62, why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of our righteousness. Because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. How can our good works be said to merit nothing, when God promises to reward them in this life and the next. This reward is not merited, it is a gift of grace. And then question and answer 64, but doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. And that's as far as reading in the Catechism. We pray for the blessing of our God upon the preaching of His Word. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, why should you do good works? Why will you do good works? Is there a a reason or a motivation that is woven into the Gospel that produces good works within us? The title of our sermon simply states it like this. Does God's grace make lazy christians does god's grace make lazy christians if we emphasize the grace of god and we exalt the the undeserved mercy and kindness and goodness of our god does the result of that produce laziness or even sinfulness in the hearts of god's people yes our our good works are not the basis of our salvation it's not the, the foundation upon which we build our lives. We are not justified by our works, by our actions or merit. Nor do our works help or add, or do we pay God back for the grace that we have received. But that is not to say that there is no place, even no necessity for good works. In our lives, Lord's Day 24 begins our consideration of good works. We're going to bring this uh, topic up again when we come to uh, Lord's Day 32 more fully. But today we are going to be focusing on the motivation for good works. Can a true born again Christian be uncaring or even rebellious in his Christian life? That was the main accusation of the Roman Church uh, during the Reformation. The Roman church said that if you teach that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, there will be no motivation for doing good. Is that true? Is that a fair accusation? That the greater emphasis we give to salvation by grace through Christ alone, that the more we emphasize that, the less good works will be evident in the Christian life. In order to get people to do what we want, and even in our society, we have the carrot or the stick approach. To get people to do what we want, we can use either the carrot or the stick. The carrot is the dangling promise of reward. The stick is the threat of punishment. So are we like stubborn mules that will only will only move when we are threatened by our master. Will we only do good out of fear? Sometimes the Christian faith is presented as fire insurance and nothing more. The reason I'm a Christian is because I don't want to go to hell, and I will believe just what is necessary in order to avoid condemnation, and that is the extent of my faith, and I never seek to grow beyond that. But is it possible? Is it possible for us to truly grasp, to understand what salvation is and not be motivated to live a life of faithfulness and obedience? Well, this morning we consider this theme. Jesus Christ both saves and renews his people by the Spirit so that we obey and will do good. So Jesus Christ, who saves us, is the same God who renews us. And the consequence is that we have a desire and the ability to obey and to do good. In our first point, then, we are going to see that what our works do is they reveal the state of our heart. Our first reading that we read from Luke chapter 6 talks about trees and their fruit. It's a question of timing. What comes first? Do the fruit and their production change the status, the state of the tree? Does fruit make the tree good? Or do good trees, by their very identity, produce good fruit? Our reading in Luke 6 starts by saying this, A good tree does not bear bad fruit. And bad trees do not bear good fruit. Just as we saw last week, a a guilty convict cannot pardon himself and make himself an upstanding citizen. So a tree in our passage is powerless to change their own nature. It takes someone who is able supernaturally to change the tree. And God, by his power, is able to make trees good. And when God, by His Spirit, makes the tree good, the corresponding fruit puts on display the nature of the tree. So children, if in a couple months from now, you are walking out in the forest, forest preserve, and you find a particular tree, and you find an apple growing on this tree... Now, the thought process that should come into your mind is very simple. If there is an apple on this tree, this must be an apple tree. If you see a pear, this is a pear tree. The kind of fruit easily displays what kind of tree it is. Or to change the illustration uh, slightly, we are branches... Grafted into the vine of Jesus Christ, being grafted into the vine of Jesus Christ, the life-giving spirit that is in Christ flows through us, the branches. That changing sap of the spirit enables us to produce fruit. We're given new hearts, made into new giving good trees. New hearts filled with good treasures. And it's interesting that at the end of our passage in Luke 6, verse 48, Jesus then draws a direct connection, not only between a tree and their fruit, but between the heart and the mouth. A good person out of the good treasure in his heart produces good. And then Jesus says this, Luke 6, or 48, Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. In many ways, the heart and the mouth are the closest and most consistent parts of our bodies. Although we may be able to restrain our external actions, with what we do with our hands, the mouth is often the clearest example of what truly lives within. If you, if you talk to a person in a familiar setting, if they're speaking off the cuff, what you hear from their mouth indicates what's living within. In this way, the words of a Christian should be the most clearest indication of what lives within them. People cannot see what's in your heart. I cannot pierce into your flesh and see the condition of your heart. But I can hear. I can hear the words that are spoken. Now when we talk about good works, most of us tend to think uh, good works are like, um, you know, Building someone's house or, or fixing their house. If a you know a hurricane has uh, affected someone's house, we go and do these extraordinary works. Feeding, feeding the hungry. You know, visiting uh, people who are in the hospital and things like. That. Now, these are all good works. But one area that is sometimes neglected when it comes to good works is the very area that Jesus focuses on. What area does Jesus bring to the forefront as the clearest explanation to? to show, to illustrate what lives within. He speaks to our words, to our mouth. One area that we sometimes neglect with our good works is our speech. Speaking the truth in love. How often in our, in our homes don't we tear down with our speech? Don't we destroy with our words? Jesus is saying your, your, your mouth, your words, how you speak shows what lives within. So as God's people, what kind of speech should be filling our home? So what kind of words should be heard in our lives? As Jesus said, your words will be full of grace, seasoned with salt, used for, for building others up. That's one of the clearest Ways in which we show that lives within what lives within our hearts. The fruit of obedience and holiness made evident in how we speak and what we say. So, being filled with the Holy Spirit means that we have been grafted into Christ, and being grafted into Jesus Christ means that we will produce fruit. This is irrefutable logic that our question and answer here gives, as well as Jesus teaches us in our passage. The irrefutable logic is this. Apple trees produce apples. Pear trees produce pears. And contrary to the teaching of evolution, horses give birth to horses. Jesus, by His Spirit, changes our nature so that what comes from us, what flows from us, is in accordance with our new nature. Jesus makes Christians. And Christians live holy lives. Our external life puts on display what Jesus is already doing within us. So getting back to the question, is it possible for a true born-again Christian, someone who has been justified, someone who has the Holy Spirit living within them, someone who's already been grafted, joined to Christ by faith, is it possible for this person to remain uncaring, or even rebellious in their lives. And the answer, question answer 64 is very clearly no. It is impossible for a born again Christian, a spirit-filled Christian, a joined to Christ by faith Christian to be uncaring about their Christian life, about the life of obedience. Why? Because we have a new heart. Because we're good trees. Because we have new desires. We have a new will and way. We can't help it and we don't want to avoid it. We want to do that which is pleasing to God. Now that is not to say that once you become a Christian, you stop sinning. No, Christians can and still do commit sin. But the sins that we commit are now contrary to our new nature. It is not that good works are out of place in the Christian life. It is sin that is now out of place in the Christian life. Sinning is contrary to our new nature. Sin cannot and will not remain in the Christian life. Through the process of sanctification, the old man is being put to death, burned away, purified, so that we grow and grow and grow until the last day we will arrive at perfection. Jesus says this in John 15, whoever abides in me... Bears much fruit. So, to summarize our first point, good works are now the part of the Christian life. It is consistent with a new, justified, born again nature. Wickedness and rebellion, these are out of place and contrary to the truth of who we are. God is not dealing with rebellious children who don't want to obey. God is dealing with adopted, loving, and loved children who are obedient and want to obey. Our desire is to be holy and obedient. As we read earlier in 2 Timothy, to be a worker approved by God, someone who has been enlisted, serving To the pleasure of the one who enlisted us. Doing good is not how we earn our position. Doing good, producing fruit doesn't change us into good trees. It's because we are already good trees that we produce fruit. Well, As we now transition to our second point, this first aspect of the necessity of our good works and the fact that we are not saved because we do good that is not to say that God does not reward the good that we do it is also true that God does reward the works that we perform now that we understand the ground and motivation of our of these good works our second point we consider the rewarding of the good works that we perform so we have to keep and this is where heresy creeps in so easily if we get the order wrong, it's like with um, with the math order of operations. If you don't do the order of operations correctly, you're going to get the wrong answer. Okay, First point, don't forget this. Your salvation saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He makes you a new tree justified on the basis of Christ and His merit alone. That point can't be forgotten. Now moving on to our second point, what do we do with these promises in Scripture where God very clearly says, I see your works and I reward the works you do in faith? This is also true, and we shouldn't be ashamed of this fact. Salvation is not a reward for doing good, but God does see and reward the works that we do in faith. Listen to these words from Hebrews 11, verse 6. God rewards those who seek him. Or again, Matthew 5, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Consider this illustration. Let's say that there are two children, and these two children are going to be asked to clean their rooms. These two children have very different hearts. The first child says to its parents, to his parents, I will only clean my room if you give me a dollar. This child, rebelliously, will not obey until there is the promise of a dollar, and they will not obey unless that dollar is received. That's child one, child A. Child B, child number two, upon being asked to clean their room, cheerfully does it because he's motivated by faith, by love in his parents' He doesn't do it because he's he's motivated by by a dollar. He does it because he loves his parents and he submits. Now upon seeing the loving, submissive, obedient of child B, the parent chooses to give that child a dollar graciously. That is a whole different matter. The child who, who obeys because he has promised a reward and expecting a reward is motivated by merits, by works. That is not a Christian. The second child, who is motivated by thanksgiving and love and faith, still receives a dollar graciously given to them by their parents, but is motivated by love. So that illustration puts the concept of reward as a gift Before us, Question answer 63. What do we do with the promises that God gives us in his word that he sees our works done in faith and he will reward them? The answer is these are not merited. They are gifts of grace. Graciously given to us. The reward that we receive is less like a paycheck and more like a Christmas present. Not something that we earn, but something that is graciously given to us. Now we have to be very clear. The the gift here... The reward that is here being promised is not the reward of eternal life. We saw this a couple weeks back with the parable of the denarius in Matthew uh, chapter 20. That was those who entered into the field at all different hours of the day. They all got the same reward. The same reward that every Christian receives is the gift of eternal life that is shared by us all. Everlasting life is promised to everyone who has joined To Christ by faith, no distinction. However, within the realm of eternal life, the fact remains that there will be different degrees of reward. Some will receive greater riches and blessings in the life to come than others. We could say that they'll have more crowns or there'll be more jewels on their crowns. This is taught in the parable of the talents, Matthew 27. One servant receives ten talents. Gains ten more. The master says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in little. Now receive much. Enter into the joy of your master. The servant is graciously rewarded for using the talents that the master had given to him. This servant has no thought of reward and no claim of merit, but the master still sovereignly, graciously chooses to reward that servant For faithful service. Or again in Ephesians 2 verse 10, we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So we are created in Jesus Christ for good works, and we are enabled to do the good works that Christ prepares in advance for us to do because we are enabled to walk in them. And yet God still graciously sees the works that we perform and he chooses to sovereignly reward those. Matthew 6, verse 4. The Father sees what you do in secret and he will reward you. So that brings up an important question. When does God reward? When does God reward the works that his people perform in faith? And here again, is an error that many churches have fallen into, the era of heresy, uh, which is a, a, a promising of external rewards in this life, the name it, claim it. That is not what we're talking about when we're talking about rewards. Very often, the rewards that we receive remain spiritual in this life. So we should not be thinking, well, if I give $100 Uh, to the church, then God's going to give me $200 directly back into my my bank account. We are not promised bigger homes, newer cars, healthier bodies. That is not how God works, and that's not what he is promising. So when we spend our spiritual riches, or we we spend our physical riches, or we spend ourselves in kingdom work here below we should not expect physical and immediate repayment in the forms of dollars and cents today. But that is not to say God doesn't reward. The reward that he gives us is much better than dollars and cents. Jesus makes this clear, Matthew 6. You, when you suffer, you are seen by your Father, and you will be rewarded. Not only can we work, we can even suffer with the promise of knowing that our suffering that we do by faith is something that our Father sees and will reward. So we endure hardships and we endure the heat of the day because we are looking not to our bank accounts, but we are looking to the spiritual fruit and the future reward. We read this in 2 Timothy 2. The athlete is crowned after he runs the race according to the rules. In the end, the farmer who did the bitter work of of plowing and sowing will be the first to taste the fruit at the harvest. So although we are not motivated by a desire to earn our salvation by our works, that is not to say that the promise of future reward should remain unmotivating. Rather, the promise of future rewards is something which can be great encouragement and motivation towards obedience. Consider Paul. We read earlier from 2 Timothy 2. That's the illustration of running the race, fighting the fight, the farmer planting, and receiving the harvest. Paul closes 2 Timothy 4 4, by saying this. I have fought the fight. I've run the race. I've kept the faith. There is a crown of righteousness laid up in heaven for me. Although the reward that God tends to give us in this life is internal and spiritual today, there will be visible and external rewards in the life to come. And the promise of an inheritance kept in heaven for you, that the crown of righteousness that Paul refers to, should be a great encouragement and motivation to us as Christians to run the race, to fight the fight, to plant the seeds, to do the work that God has called us to do. Being motivated by joy and thanksgiving, offering our lives as a living sacrifice of praise. Now I know that there are some within our church who have and are suffering. There are those within our church who continue to face the trials of of struggles and and tribulations. Sometimes your life feels more and more like a race, like a a match that you're, you're battling in. The promise of future rewards can and should be great encouragement. The fact of the matter is, congregation, you are an athlete. You are running a race. You are a soldier enlisted in an army. You are a farmer working in the field. When you look forward, you see the finish line. For some of you, the finish line is much closer than for others. When you look forward, you see the end of the battle. You're waging war today. You know the battle has already been won, but you continue to fight. The good Lord sees your struggle. He sees your labor, and it is not in vain. The Lord rewards, Hebrews 11, those who look to Him, who trust in Him, and who believe in Him by faith. And who also believe that he rewards those who seek him. So brothers and sisters, I don't know where your finish line is. But don't give up. Run the race. I don't know when you will finally reap the harvest. But don't give up. Be the farmer. Plant the seed. Do the work. Not working for your glory. Not working for your own honor. Being motivated by thankfulness. Motivated to give your life as an offering of praise. As 1 Corinthians 15 concludes, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. To conclude, can a tree make their fruit good? Can a leopard change their spots? Surely not. But a tree that has been made good will produce good fruit. Jesus Christ saves and renews his people so that we desire to obey and do good. The promise of future rewards both comforts and encourages us as we seek to honor the Lord in all that we do. Because the Lord sees what is done in secret. And on the last day, he will reward you and make it known. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this encouraging word about the promise of future rewards. And although we acknowledge that any reward we receive is not merited, we don't earn it. We thank you that you have promised graciously to reward the work that we do by faith. We pray that this promise of future rewards would be a great encouragement and comfort to us as we face the trials and struggles and tribulations and hardships of this life. May we not give up, O Lord. May we stand firm. May we run the race. May we fight the good fight. Knowing that there is kept in heaven a crown of righteousness. A reward and inheritance. Kept in glory for us. That will be ours on that last day. We thank you for this comforting truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.